Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. A heavenly King, consoler, spirit of truth, present in all place, and filling all things, treasury of blessings, and giver of life, come and dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, a good one. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and giving life to those in the tombs. Thank you, Father Charles. Our speaker this evening received a licentiate in medieval studies from the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Toronto. He is currently a professor of philosophy at Christendom College uh, and specializes in the history of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, natural law, and the personalism of John Paul II. He and his wife and his three children, he was a, a really a favorite professor of mine, and I was very blessed to study under him in Rome for a whole semester. Um, and he's been a great blessing and friend in my life, and I'm very honored to welcome Dr. Douglas Flippin. Can I use that or no? Okay, we'll see if it works. Good evening. We're going to take a look at the topic of epistemology. In case um, you're wondering how it's spelled, I will spell it on the board. Epistemology has to do with the theory of knowledge. You might say, well, the knowledge of what? Well, it's with the knowledge of knowledge. And that raises an immediate problem. So epistemology is about the theory of knowledge. And to give you a quick indication of how many people in philosophy regard epistemology or this study of knowledge itself, um, I was in graduate school and um, I was working on a thesis, or I was about to start work on a thesis, and the thesis was in the area of um, philosophical physics, natural philosophy, and I was going to work on um, the nature of time, something to do with the nature of time. And um, I started losing interest in the topic. So I went to talk to another one of my teachers, and I said, uh, you got any suggestions for a topic other than time, the nature of time? And he said, well, you could work on the nature of knowledge and how that works. And I said, well, um, anybody in particular that I could work on? Well, yeah, he said, you could compare Aristotle and St. Thomas on this particular problem of knowledge. Okay, that sounds interesting. I'll go think about it. So I went back and told my original advisor, I've decided to stop working in the area of natural philosophy and uh, stop working on the problem of time. I I I'm going to work in epistemology. 
he looked at me and he said, you got to be kidding me. That stuff is impossible. So you're in for a problem. <laughs> Here's the problem, the first problem. Um, even though philosophy begins in wonder and we wonder about all kinds of things, uh, we're most comfortable wondering about concrete things in the, the world, other substances. E even, even God, if God's not a part of the material world, he's still, uh, he's still a substantial being, something you can, you can, you can focus on, something you can uh, get your mind around. But the activity of knowing itself, uh, how do you focus on knowing itself? You have to take knowing for granted in order to try to know what knowing is. Why are you doing that? Isn't it all a waste of time? Um, and yet it's true that people, philosophers, thinkers in the West, have puzzled over the nature of the activity of knowing uh, ever since the beginning of philosophy. And it became a terrible problem in modern philosophy and was the occasion of a, the creation of a number of different philosophical schools, people who disagreed with one another about exactly how knowing works. So we're going to begin by wondering about some aspect of reality, but instead of wondering about an easy aspect of reality to look at, we're going to reflect on the activity of knowing itself. To put it somewhat paradoxically, we are going to be wondering about wondering and trying to understand understanding and to try to know knowing. And this just sounds, eh, this goes against the grain. It sounds very odd to a lot of people. Okay, so um, uh, you're forewarned. What do I mean by this activity of knowing to begin with? so that we can be clear about the term. Knowing is a very general word. We can speak of knowing through the senses or knowing through the intellect. And if we focus on the activity of knowing through the senses, we can get fancy and subdivide it into the external senses and the internal senses. Okay? And then the external senses, everybody knows what those are. Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. So examples of knowing would be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. These are all examples of knowing. Everybody knows what seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching are. So you've got some idea of what knowing is. Then we could start talking about internal sensations. Um, just to keep it simple, um, we are internally aware of the functioning of our own external senses. That's one kind of internal sensation. You are aware when you are seeing and if you're seeing double, you're aware that there's something wrong with your activity of seeing or your ability or your power to see, then everyone is familiar with the imagination and with our ability to imagine things um, and to construct either realistic or unrealistic kinds of things in the imagination. 
creative artists depend on the imagination very heavily. It's just uh, imagining is just another example of what I mean very generally by knowing. Um, then we've got the ability to make instinctive judgments um, about individual things as helpful or harmful to us. We share this in common with the animals. So it's another a, a example of sense, sensing. Otherwise, we wouldn't say we share it in common with the animals. So, and we also have the, the very familiar activity of remembering, see? which is another activity uh, that we could call an internal sensation. So um, being aware of the functioning of our external senses, imagining, instinctively making judgments about the harmfulness or the usefulness of things, like you look at some dog and you don't just look at the dog, you say, uh, I don't think that dog likes me, uh, I think he may t take a bite out of me. That, that's an example of an instinctive internal judgment about something you externally see. Then everyone knows what memory and remembering is. On the level of the intellect, we can distinguish different acts such as conceiving, judging, and reasoning. I can conceive of what a dog is. I can judge that a dog is asleep. And I can reason. All of these are acts of knowing, okay? So just so you are aware of how broadly the term is taken before we get started, um, I wanted to go through these examples. Okay, now what we are going to be wondering about is a very old problem and a problem that is at the very center of this area of philosophy called epistemology, the theory of knowledge. What we're going to be wondering about is how any act of knowing, any one of these acts of knowing, how any act of knowing lays hold of its object. Okay? How does any act of knowing lay hold of its object? You might say, well, it's obvious that they do, so why worry about it? Students wonder this all the time. Why are we doing, why are we wondering how knowledge lays hold of its object? Obviously it does, otherwise we wouldn't be able to function uh, from one minute to the next. But never mind that. We, we often wonder about things that seem a little odd to many people. But uh, be precisely because this activity of knowing has given rise to so many different schools of philosophy who disagreed with one another about how knowing attains its object and many people have turned into idealists um, and I don't mean idealists in the sense of living by high ideals I mean being convinced that every, all reality exists in the mind that all reality is mental because many people have wound up in this, this position of idealism because they couldn't figure out how to solve the problem of how knowledge reach, reaches its object, um, it, it's an important problem, okay? So it's an, it, it's an important problem. If you, can't, if you can't solve the problem, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, now I have to make another um, distinction in order to get you to 
feel the weight, feel the difficulty of the problem, and this next distinction that I need to quickly go over is different kinds of acts or activities. Okay? There are roughly two broadly different forms or types of acts or activities. There are acts that are called imminent, and there are acts that are called either transient or transitive. Okay? The difference between these two acts is a very simple one. An imminent act is one that is complete within the one acting. Okay? Complete within the one acting. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples. A transient or transitive act is an act that is complete only in the thing acted on. Examples of eminent acts, for example, seeing, loving. I don't mean manifesting love. I don't mean acting on love, but just the act of loving. Hating, wondering, thinking, and generally any act of a power of knowing or any act of the will or of one of, of what is called our sense appetites, our ability to desire, to like things, dislike things, to desire things, and, and so on. These are all imminent acts. They are complete within the one knowing. Um, if I'm looking at something, I'm not affecting it. I'm not doing anything to it. When I look at something, I'm, my act of seeing is complete within me. I'm, it's not an acting on something. Okay? So imminent acts are not, they have, they have objects. They have objects, but do not act on those objects. Okay? Imminent, all acts have objects. Imminent acts have objects, but they're not a way of acting on those objects or a way of affecting them. This is just another way of saying they're perfect and complete within the one who's acting. They're not a way of connecting the one who's acting with something else. If I put my hand on the table, that's not an imminent act. I'm acting on the table. I'm doing something to something outside myself. That's the nature of a transient or transitive act. An act that is complete only in the thing that's acted on. So if I walk, I walk on the ground. Or if I sit, I sit on a chair. Or if I hug, I hug a friend. There's all kind of, if I dig, I may be digging a ditch. If I build, I'm building something. These are all transient or transitive acts. Okay? Now all those acts of knowing that I outlined earlier, that I distinguished earlier, they're all imminent acts. Okay? They're complete within the one who's knowing. This makes us realize the problem a little more clearly, precisely because acts of knowing are all imminent, are all complete within the one who's acting. 
They're not ways of acting on things, reaching out and literally, physically coming into contact with things, except for touching something, tasting something. Um, precisely because acts of knowing remain complete and whole within the one knowing, ah, we begin to wonder, how does my act of seeing the clock on the wall lay hold of the clock on the wall? How does my act of seeing the clock on the wall actually grasp, attain the clock on the wall? How, how does that work? People have puzzled about this um, for hundreds and hundreds of years and have given a variety of different possible solutions of it. Now, in asking this question, how an act of knowing lays hold of its object. And St. Augustine puzzled about this in the uh, 5th century. St. Augustine wrote a letter to a friend of his. He, says, he said in the letter, um, let's not worry about touching and tasting and smelling because with touching and tasting and smelling, and we're pretty closely in contact with the thing that we're touching or tasting, and to some extent with smelling. But he says hearing, the act of hearing, just to focus on acts of external sensation that everyone is familiar with, the act of hearing and the act of seeing make us wonder. Um, the thing that I hear is at a distance from me, and yet my act of hearing is part of my life, part of my being. And since my being is bound up, you know, in my body right here, and the thing that I hear is out there at a distance, how do I lay hold of that thing that I hear at a distance? And he says, sight is even worse. Sight is even worse. We can look at the stars in the sky. The stars in the sky are at an incredible distance from us, and yet, we're convinced that when we look at stars in the sky, we're not looking at images in our own eyesight. We're not looking at something going on in the brain. We're looking at real stars. How does it work? St. Augustine said. Isn't my act of seeing part of my life? Isn't my life bound up with my being in a body? If my life and my being are bound up with my acts of sensing, um, if I can see something, lay hold of something that's at a great distance from me, as it exists in itself, then it seems my perception is out there somehow. And if my perception is out there somehow, is my life out there too? Is my existence out there with the star that I see? St. Augustine said, eh, this is very puzzling. He says, it's very difficult to understand what's going on here. He said, on the one hand, we're convinced, we're convinced that when we see that star, it's that star in itself that we're seeing. Not some likeness of it in us. It's the star in itself we're seeing. And yet, my seeing is part of my life. My life is only in this body. How do I reach that star in itself by an act of seeing? Does everybody see the problem? Now, St. Augustine wasn't about to let go of the common human conviction that when I see a star, I'm looking at 
something that's at a great distance from me, and I'm grasping it somehow um, as it is in itself, as a really distinct thing from me. Bertrand Russell, on the other hand, a 20th century English philosopher, um, wasn't so sure. He tried to convince us at one point that when we look at a star at a great distance from us, you're not really seeing that star as it is in itself. He said, you're really just aware of something going on in your own brain. Now, most people wouldn't buy this, but Bertrand Russell offered a great argument to try to convince us that that's actually what's going on. You, you can't really be grasping that star in itself. He said, consider for a minute. Let's say you're watching an exploding star. And a physicist or an astronomer tells you, you, you know how long it takes light to get from that exploding star to here? That star that you see through the telescope that's exploding, it's gone. It's not there anymore. It must have blown apart into endless pieces a long time ago. So what are you looking at? Oh, I think I'm seeing an exploding star. <laughs> I'm sure I'm seeing an exploding star. He says, you can't be, it's not there. I think I'm seeing an exploding star. Well, how are you going to explain the fact that it's not there anymore, according to the astronomer and the physicist? Well, maybe I'm watching it as it, as it was exploding in the past. Oh, well, maybe that's a possibility. But you see, we're very reluctant to give, our, give up our conviction that it's that real star that we're seeing, even if someone raises an objection like Bertrand Russell raised. Are you really seeing a star if it's not there anymore? Well, I didn't say I was seeing it as it now existed, I, but I'm convinced I'm seeing a, a star and I'm seeing it blow up. I can sit down and watch TV and watch Hitler deliver a speech from, you know, the 1930s. Um, and I'm convinced that's Hitler I'm watching giving a speech back in the 1930s. He says, yeah, but he's dead and gone. Yeah, I, I know that, but somehow or other I'm inclined to say that's Hitler I'm watching. Okay. So we've got this problem of wondering how knowing, acts of knowing, attain their objects. What we want to do is to try to figure out how does it work. We've sharpened the problem by saying, look, an act of knowing remains complete within the one who's knowing. The thing that is known is very often an independently existing thing, sometimes exists at a great distance from the one who's doing the knowing. And it is a valid problem to wonder how, by means of an act of knowing that remains within me, that is complete in me, do I reach out and lay hold of some really independently existing thing. Okay, here's the direction we're going in in order to try to solve this problem. It's easy to state the problem. It's harder to explain uh, how the solution works. Uh, I know how it works, but I always have a tough time uh, explaining it to students. Uh, okay.
Um, let's start with some helpful hints. Um, everyone is aware of looking in a mirror. Now, what do you say you see when you look in a mirror? What do you say you see when you look in a mirror? Do I say, oh, I see, uh, I see glass and I see light rays bouncing off a glass that's hanging on the wall? No, we don't say that. If you look in the mirror, you say, I see myself in the mirror. I see myself in the mirror. Now, some little kid might say, but, you know, how, how can you see yourself in the mirror? You're not in the mirror. Oh, uh, well, somehow I am in the mirror. I'm not really in the mirror, but somehow I'm in the mirror. Uh, I do see myself in the mirror. Uh, yes, I can say I'm looking at glass. Yes, I can say I'm looking at light being reflected from glass. But um, what I'm really interested in is what I see in that piece of glass by means of that light. You can give me whatever physical explanation you like of how it works. I see myself in the mirror. At the same time, if I show someone a picture um, of a friend of mine and I say, uh, here's, a, here's a picture of um, uh, Mary Jane, let's say. Here's a picture of Mary Jane. She's a friend of mine. Um, or I might say, instead of saying, here's a picture of Mary Jane, I'd say, here's Mary Jane. Just like if you go on the mall in Washington, D.C., you can look up at the statue of Lincoln and you can say one of two things. Here is a statue of Lincoln, a big statue of Lincoln. Or you can say, there's Lincoln. We can say one, we can say the other. Um, the same time, and take another example. Let's say you are watching a TV program, and eh, for guys, let's say it's a sports game, and you don't like the way the sports game is going, you don't like the way members on the team you like are acting, or let's say you don't like the last call that the referee made, you can get mad watching the TV. And uh, your wife or a friend could say, what are you getting mad at the TV for? <laughs> Does that make sense to get mad at the TV? The, the ref can't hear you, you know. Your players can't hear you. You're watching a TV. Why are, you, why are you getting mad at the TV? It's not the TV I'm getting mad at. I'm getting mad at those players and at the ref. Yeah, but they're not there. It's just the TV. Yeah. Well, they're there somehow. Um, I see them on the TV, just like I see myself in the mirror, just like I see someone in a picture that represents that person. And if we switch to the area of music, you, you can have a particular recording of a particular piece of music, and maybe it's a particular uh, singer, and you like the way that singer sang that music better than the way any other singer sang that same piece of music. And so... Um, you sit down and you listen to the piece of music and you talk about the piece of music as if it wasn't a CD playing in a machine making, you know, electronic uh, uh, impulses that go over to the speakers and make the speakers send sounds out. No, you, you act like you're listening to that particular singer sing that particular song. 
the singer's not there. He, she, whoever it is, not there. Um, and yet, you act as if you're listening to a particular singer sing a particular song. And it may be the way that particular singer sang that song five years ago, ten years ago. But you've, you've got her or him right there on that CD or whatever piece of recording device you've got. So the point I'm making with these different examples is we very often take a likeness of a thing for the thing itself. We very often take a likeness of a thing for the thing itself. Is it fair to do this? It m must be. Um, we know what we're doing when we do it. We communicate very well when we do it. Everybody knows what we're talking about when we say, uh, I looked in the mirror this morning and I didn't like what I saw. I think I better stop drinking. Uh, or whatever the problem is. Um, no, I'm, I think I'm getting old. I think I'm eating too much. Uh, uh, I don't like the way my hairline is receding. It, that's me in the mirror. And I can take the likeness of myself for myself. We do this day in and day out. We know what we're doing. So there must be something fair. There must be something accurate. There must be something truthful to treating a likeness of a thing for the thing of which it is a likeness. Now the question is, um, what's going on when we do that? What's going on when we do that? One particular modern philosopher argued, um, you, when you take a likeness for some other thing, let's say you've got a tree, and you've got an image of a tree, let's say a painting of a tree, statue of a tree, makes no difference. You've got a real tree, you've got an image of a tree of some kind, painting. Um, is this like this? The answer is yes. Sure, of course. Well, if this is like this, is it also true that this is like this? Well, kind of, I suppose. But the likeness more goes this way, doesn't it? I can, it's true. I can look at an old picture of myself and say, gee, I don't look too much like myself. That is, I'm comparing the real me with the, the picture, the likeness. And I, I, I can say, I don't measure up too well. <laughs> That picture looks a lot better than I do. Uh, and that's me. Uh, yeah, but here's the real you right here and now. So even though we've got a, a tree and a, an image, a likeness of a tree, and we want to go this way, some philosophers say, yeah, yeah, but you can go the other way too. I can say that the tree is like the painting of the tree. If this is like this, then this is also like this. And when you do that, when some philosophers do that, they say, so why should we go more in one direction than in the other? Why should we go just this way primarily? Why can't I go this way? What makes this the privileged way to go? What makes this kind of a subordinate way to go? Now, why am, I, why am I bringing this up? 
Because when we try to explain how knowledge is of its object, we appeal to things like paintings directing our attention to the person represented on the painting, uh, a statue directing our attention to the person that we think the statue is a likeness of, um, um, a particular recording of a piece of music being a likeness of directing our attention to the actual, the original recording of, I'm, I'm sorry, to the actual performing, the original performance of that piece of music that was then recorded and you're now listening to the recording. When we give examples like this, we say an act of knowing must work in the same way, you know. Otherwise, how are we going to explain it? So, I might say that just as a painting points to the thing represented, just as a statue points to the thing represented, so an act of seeing somehow is pointing to the thing seen and an act of judging or conceiving on the intellectual level is somehow pointing to the thing of which I judge or conceive. How else are we going to understand what's going on? And if by means of a painting or a mirror image, the thing imaged, just as these examples that are external to us, the mirror is external to me. Well, when I look at myself in the mirror, it, that's not external to me. The painting, the thing represented, they're often both external to us. We can look at both of them, compare one to the other, and say, this points to this more than this points to this. Same thing here. This points to this more than this points to this. The same kind of thing must be going on with every act of knowing. My act of seeing must somehow point to this thing seen in the way in which a painting or a mirror image or a statue point to the things that they represent. And then some philosophers say, uh, I don't think so. You go, well, why not? And they say, well, because here I'm aware of two different things. I can see the statue. I can either see the person who's represented in the statue, or I can think of him. Um, if he's still alive, I can get, get him to stand next to his statue, and I can see how the statue points to or represents him. Same thing with the painting especially if you have someone paint your children, you know, uh, paint some relative of yours, you can compare the painting with the original. Uh, here, both of these things are external to you, the representation and the thing represented. Um, some philosophers and Bishop George Berkeley from the 18th century, who was an Irish Anglican bishop, is famous for doing this, but he's not the only one who did it. He said, um, if these acts of knowing 
are like this. That means something that represents the thing seen must be there in my act of seeing. In other words, I have to say there's, um, there's some kind of a likeness. There's some kind of a likeness of the thing seen bound up with my act of seeing in order for me to understand how my act of seeing points to, lays hold of the thing that I see. Um, in short, there must be a visual image. There must be a visual image of this thing that's seen literally in my power of sight. And that visual image internal to my power of sight must be pointing me, pointing my act of seeing towards that thing seen. And Bishop Barclay continues, if that's the case, if that's the case, then just as I am aware of the statue and the person represented by the statue, so if I see a thing and there has to be a visual image in me directing my act of seeing to that thing seen, every time I see, I should see two things. I should see the visual image and the thing of which it is a visual image. And he says, but you don't. So either you have to give up the visual image or you have to give up the real thing. Now, most people, if push comes to shove, would give up the visual image. Bishop Barclay gave up the real thing. He said, there's no material world out there, you know. It's just you and God. You and me and a bunch of other spirits roaming around, you know, in empty space. There's no material world. It's just you and me and God. And God is immediately causing in each of us all of our sensations or perceptions. You go, I think you're nuts. <laughs> and most people wouldn't buy or wouldn't accept the conclusion to his line of reasoning, but they couldn't figure out what was wrong with his line of reasoning. They go, I think I'm just going to ignore you, Bishop. Uh, I don't like the way you think. Um, it disagrees with common human experience. Um, instead of trying to explain everybody's experience, you're just removing the whole material world because it's inconvenient. No, I think you're making a mistake. I'm not sure what mistake you're making, but I think you're making a mistake. So, Bishop Barclay says, well, then you are claiming you have to hold that in addition to this physical object that you see, there has to be a visual image in your power of sight directing your act of seeing to that thing seen, and yet you're not aware of that visual image. Is that what you're holding? And you say, I guess so. That's what St. Augustine thought. I'm in pretty good company if I hold it with St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, reason tells us Reason tells us that there must be a likeness in my power of knowing, directing my act of knowing to the thing, the external thing that I know. Otherwise, I can't explain how it works. And so St. Augustine, who was a very clever fellow, asked himself, well, if there is a likeness of the thing that I'm seeing in my power of sight, if there's a visual image there, 
How come I don't see it? How come I don't see that visual image? And what do you think St. Augustine answered? He said, well, the visual image must be so like the visible thing itself that your act of seeing just goes right through the one and lays hold of the other. Okay. He said, that must be how it works. Because if you do away with that visual image, you're not going to be able to explain how your act of seeing, which is part of you, lays hold of that thing out there that you see. And he said, um, and let me try to convince you that this is the right way to go about explaining the problem. He says, did you ever take a quick peek at the sun and then turn and look at a dark object? Oh, well, I've looked at light bulbs, but you didn't have light bulbs in your day. You probably looked at a, you know, a candle burning and then you looked at a dark colored wall. St. Augustine says, fine, never mind the technology. Just tell me what you saw when you looked at the sun, when you looked at a light, and then you, you looked at a dark wall. Uh, I said, well, I, 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 I saw a light. Everywhere I looked, there was a light. He says, well, where do you think that light was coming from that you saw everywhere you looked? Did you think there was a light on the wall just moving around everywhere you looked? It just jumped, at, jumped ahead of you and kept right out there in front of you? No, I don't think that was what was going on because after a few seconds, it just went away. So what do you think was happening? Well, I think I overstimulated my eyes. Well, he says, well, what do you think that overstimulation of your eyes was, if not a visual image that was overly strong? Your ability to look quickly at a light and then to look at a dark wall and to see that light follow you everywhere you go St. Augustine says, is physical evidence, physical evidence that there are visual images in you. You just don't notice them most of the time. In the same way, there must be some kind of likeness in every one of your powers of knowing, whether it's the intellect or one of your external senses or your internal senses. There must be some kind of internal representation or likeness within your power of knowing, directing it to the thing that you know. And you just don't notice those internal likenesses or representations most of the time because they're so much like the thing of which they are a likeness that your attention, your act of knowing just goes right through the likeness to the thing known. Okay. Well, maybe. That's what's going on. I can't think of a better explanation. But people still want more of an explanation. How does that work? How can there be a likeness within my power of knowing and I have to reason to it? Otherwise, I don't know it's there. Um, well, St. Augustine said you don't always have to reason to it. Sometimes, as with after images, you know, you look at the light and then you look at the dark wall. You know you overstimulated your sight. You know there's an image of that light that is there in your power of sight, and it's following you wherever you look, which means uh, you're aware of that visual image literally being in your power of sight. Ordinarily, you're not, but if you overstimulate your sight, you are aware of that image being there. Okay.
I guess so. Um, how does it work? Could you give me you know, more detail about how it works? It, now, let me, let me stop for a minute. Is anybody, is anybody puzzled? Anybody have any questions? Anybody lost? Anybody completely at a loss for what's going on? Uh, should I back up and explain something a little better? Anybody have any, have any questions? Are you following me so far? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. And there was a field in sociology called symbolic interactionism uh -huh. about how people's realities are created based on the objects that they perceive, you know, the objects they, they contain and so forth. And it had a lot to do with kind of relativism. In other words, that not everyone perceives the same thing. Reality is created and it's created differently mm -hmm. for different people because they have different perceptions. Yeah. I can't help thinking about that, and I'm wondering how that fits into this in terms of obtaining the objects. Okay, very, very quickly, uh, in response to that, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, lawyers have the same problem when they get witnesses. <laughs> no, no, this is not a joke about lawyers. <laughs> Lawyers have the same problem with witnesses in court. You get five witnesses of some accident, some crime. You ask each person, well, would you tell us what you saw? You get slightly different accounts from people. Matter of fact, there's a famous Japanese filmmaker who made a film just about this problem of different witnesses. Um, giving different explanations of one and the same event. Um, how it works is there's, a, there, there, there's a, 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 an objective basis. There's an objective foundation. Okay? There's a reality there. Everybody perceives that reality. But then we don't just literally perceive something and let it go at that. We want to make sense of things. And we make sense of things in terms of what we're used to. And because we have different backgrounds, different experiences, we, when, every, when, when, when five of us see exactly one and the same thing, not only could we, if we trained ourselves to, restrict ourselves to a simple description of what we saw, um, but in addition to that, we immediately begin interpreting what we saw in terms of our own personal backgrounds. And that's what the lawyers get out of witnesses in a court. And they try to get underneath those interpretations to what was literally seen. So all I'm saying here is, w even though that's a fascinating problem, how we interpret one and the same thing differently, and even claim we saw things differently or saw, saw different things, there's always an underlying objective foundation or basis that you can get to, and that's what we're talking about. And how that works, how, 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 how do we, how are we able to lay hold of the objectively real things in the world around us? Never mind how we go about interpreting those things differently because of our own different personal backgrounds. Okay, So let's leave that, that problem aside. It's a very interesting problem. But what, what we're interested in is a more fundamental, more basic problem of how we literally lay hold of independently real things at all. 
so that we can even come up with con somewhat the same but somewhat different accounts of one and the same thing. What we're after is how can we come up with even different accounts of the same thing. It's that same thing that, 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 that we're, we're trying to explain. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't over everybody's head. Oh, oh good. I love your confidence. <laughs> Nobody ever gets epistemology perfectly. So <laughs> okay. Now, we can deepen this problem a little bit more. And I was just wondering if it was, if it was the right time to start deepening it or if we should put it off a bit. Maybe I could give you a few hints of where we're going and we'll have to pick it up and go into it in more detail next time. Um, there's a good explanation of why when you have an image and a thing imaged, there's a good explanation of why even though you can say uh, this is a likeness of this, but this also is a likeness of this, why does it primarily go in one direction? Why does it primarily go in one direction? We can say, this gets us into a little terminology, which can get difficult after a while, that this image is a formal likeness of this thing. This thing is some kind of combination of matter, and form, eh, this is lovely philosophical terminology. And this image has grasped something of the form that makes this thing actually what it is. And when you lay hold of something, some part of, some one of the forms that makes this thing what it is, that form, because it belongs to it, to exist naturally in this way and not in this way, when you find that form here in the image, it always points back to the way it naturally exists. We'll go over that more next time. <laughs> That's the doctrine of, when a, here's, let me put it simply, um, we've got a form, it, for example, it could be something as simple as a shape. Everybody knows what a shape is. Form means all kinds of things, but shape is a great example of form. Animals very often interpret other animals to be of one kind or another in terms of their shape. If we've got a, a form here existing in a way it does not naturally exist, it points naturally to the same form as it naturally exists. This one-way stream of a form existing in a way that's not natural to it to exist, pointing toward itself as it naturally exists, is called by the fancy name of intentionality. And we will go over that more next time because I always have trouble getting the students to understand intentionality. This is getting into metaphysics. 
the relationship between being and existence. You go, uh, that's kind of abstract. I feel lost whenever you start talking about being and existence. Could you give me a concrete example? Well, yeah, a million and one, but it's not going to help you unless you can unless you can abstract from them and deal with the relationship between form as form and existence as existence. So we will leave that for another time. Thank you, Dr. Flippen. Okay. Very, very clear. Thank you very much. I, oh, I appreciate okay. that. I know you all have some real burning questions. Doctor, just to be clear on this, you seem to be saying that one's impression or one's object that one has in his mind is somehow or another exactly what is seen and that individuals beliefs uh, regardless of how they have modified what it is he or she has seen has something to do with the reality of the thing seen did I understand that correctly <laughs> at the basis there is something that's exactly the same in the thing known and in the knower at the basis or at the foundation there's something that's exactly the same I didn't go into that in any detail except at the very end I said some formal aspect and the simplest example we can think of is just shape some formal aspect uh, is the same in the knower and in the thing known and then on the basis of that once we take in different information through our different external senses we pick up different formal aspects of the thing once that is taken into our internal senses we start using we start using our memories we bring our memories forward to help us catalog uh, categorize uh, make some sense out of this thing and um, to someone who's been afraid of spiders um, all his life you see a spider someone's gonna say that's a scary thing someone else is gonna say well no it's not a scary thing it's just a you know it's an, it's an insect of a particular kind someone will might say oh that's a that's a monster that's 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 it's automatically poisonous and they if, if every you know if every snake is automatically a poisonous snake some people automatically say that's that's something poisonous if they they see a snake now it's not that they literally saw something poisonous they saw something having the shape of a snake uh, they started out very accurately and then they began interpreting it and when they begin to speak to someone else they give you not only what they literally experience through the senses they will add interpretations based on their past experiences and this very often leads to differences of opinion between different people because we we bring different information to bear when we go to interpret things I said I'm not interested in that problem of how confusing communication and understanding people uh, between people can get on the basis of interpretation I'm interested in the more underlying problem of how are we able to see one and the same thing um, because we can disagree uh, in our interpretations 
But you, if you get down to a deep enough, deep enough level, people will say, well, um, I, I saw something, uh, you know, it was shaped kind of like this. And I saw it moving, and it was moving through what most people call grass, whether it was astroturf or real grass. I, I don't know, but, you know, uh, I saw this thing, and it, it, it was moving, and uh, I think it was a snake. Uh, whether it was a snake or some robot that some inventor had come up with to move like a, to move like a snake, it, it, you know, it, it, you can be mistaken about that. But at the basis, at the foundation, the person saw something with a certain shape, it was moving, and you could get a number of different people to agree on that. All I'm interested in is how is it that when I see, how does my act of seeing lay hold of that objectively real thing. Never mind all the differences in interpretation. Just w at, at the basis or at the foundation, uh, how, how is it that internal acts of knowing are able to lay hold of externally real things? Because we know we can do it. We know we, know we can do it. Yes? Isn't our soul, our soul and knowledge tied together? They're both spiritual. You can't see knowledge. You can't put it on a table. Our soul is, 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 is knowledge and intellect and free will. And I'm trying to tie the soul to, to your discussion tonight on knowledge. No, I don't. Part of our being is, is, is a soul, and our soul has is, is, is got that knowledge. Right. Okay. We're talking about knowledge of human beings as an activity human beings perform. We could talk about acts of sensing in animals, but we're, let's say we're sticking with human beings, okay? So we attribute an act of knowing in the very broad sense in which I indicated it. It could be either an act of knowing in the part of a sense, power, or an act of knowing on the part of the intellect. They're both acts of knowing in the very broad sense of the term because the same problem arises with both of them. How by means of an act of seeing or hearing or smelling that is within me do I grasp some externally real thing? Same thing with the intellect. How by means of an act of knowing, of an intellectual act of knowing, how do I know, conceive of, judge, reason about externally real things? It's the same problem there. Okay, so This is an act of knowing and it is of a person or of a human being. And you're perfectly right. If we analyze this person, we say a person is a composite of soul and body. The problem is, is the act of knowing an act of knowing only of the soul, only of the body, of the person as a whole? Well, um, we attribute acts of knowing most properly to the person as a whole, as a composite of body and soul. And we say that an act of sensing or an act of sensation is an act of the soul-body composite as such, whereas an act of knowing on the part of the intellect, this is an act of the person as having and intellect, which is a strictly immaterial power of the soul. 
So what I'm saying in response to, to you is that you can't lump all those different acts of knowing, you can't treat all of those different acts of knowing as if they were all acts of knowing of a purely or strictly immaterial nature and all of them belonging to the soul by itself without the body because uh, Thomas, for example, and I think this is just very straightforward, um, th Thomas would argue that if you're talking about one of the senses, either external sense or internal sense, um, you're talking about uh, a soul-body combination. A power, a sense power, <coughs> is a, an actuality or a reality, not of the soul alone, not of the body alone, but of the soul-body composite. So that we're inclined to think that when we die and the soul leaves the body, you retain your intellect. You retain your will, but you probably won't be able to see or touch or smell or taste or imagine uh, anything because those sense powers depend, they, they, they're rooted in the soul. They're rooted in the soul, but they, they don't exist completely, naturally, as the powers they are. They can't function. You can't act through them unless you've got uh, the body as well. So many of our acts of knowing are acts of the soul-body composite as a composite, whereas our intellectual acts of knowing are acts of the intellect as an immaterial power uh, of the person as a whole, uh, as a soul-body composite. So the reason for saying that is we think that we can't know anything intellectually unless we were initially fed information through our senses. So our intellects depend on our senses. We, in order to understand something intellectually about a gorilla, you need to gather sensible experience about gorillas. It's helpful to you know, see them, hear them. Uh, you don't want to touch them too closely, probably. And, you know, um, but it's, it's helpful to gain a lot of sense experience of, of gorillas in order to, to take intellectual knowledge from that. So I agree with you that uh, knowledge is not something that you can grasp or lay hold of, um, but then neither is walking, neither is skiing, something you can literally grasp or lay hold of. You can only grasp or lay hold of substances, real things. Activities, you can't grasp or lay hold of. And knowing is uh, being an imminent activity with um, nothing external to the knower that you're acting on is even less of an activity that you can grasp or lay hold of. And yet we certainly know what knowing is because we can give all these different ex examples of it. So um, uh, I don't want to, uh, I, I can agree with you and disagree with you at the same time because yes, the soul in and of itself um, is immaterial, can exist apart from the body, but the human soul most naturally exists activating a body, being bound up with a body, being forming a substantial unity with a body. And many, most of our powers do not function without that body because they're, they're actions, they're powers of the, of the body-soul composite forming a unity. Only the intellect and the will um, are strictly immaterial and, 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 and are able to function uh, are, are able to be acted through in a way that's independent of the body.
throughout the evening you've been pulling on the thread to the answer to a question that you asked early on, uh -huh. which was, how does any act of knowing lay hold of its object, right. which you just touched on again. Mm -hmm. And I have sort of followed most of the thread pulling that you've done to lead us towards that answer. I'm not sure I fully comprehend the problem or question. The, the part of, and, and you were just touching on it a minute ago, the part of grabbing, knowing grabbing hold of something. What exactly does that mean in terms of knowledge, at, attaining its object, grabbing its object? It's well, not clear. Okay, Gr grabbing, laying hold of is a very physical way of expressing what's going on. Um, and theoretically could be misleading, uh, could lead to misunderstandings. Attaining is, um, I think, clear enough. Um, and all we have to do is to go back. And I, 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 I'm, I appeal to St. Augustine, not because I'm primarily in love with him. I love St. Thomas a lot more than I love St. Augustine. But St. Augustine gave some, he's got some pretty nifty things that he said that helps us to get into the problem, to see what's going on. And when St. Augustine writes this letter to the, a friend of his, and the guy's name was Volusian, uh, when he writes this letter, um, he says, you know, there's something really puzzling about knowing. Um, uh, knowing is a kind of perceiving. Um, I'm sorry, it, seeing and hearing, which he singled out as most problematic. Seeing and hearing are generally lumped under acts of perceiving. Perceiving is only possible in a living thing. It's an act of a living thing as living. Life is only in the body. And my existence as a living thing is only in the body. And he says, uh, so I can trace seeing. I can tie it back to perceiving. I can tie this back to living. And I can tie this back to existing. And he says, clearly my living and my existing are in a body. This perceiving is kind of peculiar, he says, because it's a manifestation of me as living. So I'm tempted to say perceiving is also only in a body. And yet he says, uh, and, and, and the same thing goes with this act of seeing, that's only in a body. Well, if my seeing is only going on in my body, St. Augustine says, how can I see that star which is definitely not in my body? I'm not out there where that star is. That star is not down here where I am. Everybody admits it's a long ways away. Uh, there seems to be a problem here. I don't know that star as a visual image. Most people are not convinced that that's where the description of what's going on begins. The description is, I see a really existing, independently existing star. It's a long ways from me. My act of seeing is not a long ways from me. It's right here in me. How by my act of seeing, which is bound up with me, part of my being, do I lay hold of that extremely distant star? St. Augustine says, if we, if we take seeing and take a star, the problem becomes manifest. I lay hold of, imaginatively speaking, I grasp, I attain 
through an act of seeing, I know I, I attain that star in its actual existence independent of me. Well, but I'm, I'm not seeing knowledge. I'm seeing the star. And the seeing is a piece of knowing. So I am attaining knowing, but I'm knowing a real star. So whether you put it in terms of seeing or knowing, the problem's always, the puzzle is always the same. The knowing is in me. The seeing is in me. I'm attaining an act of seeing. I'm attaining an act of knowing. But I'm somehow uniting with a real star. St. Augustine says, how does it work? He could figure it out. But he said, it's obviously something to wonder at. It's something we wonder at. And he didn't know what to do with the problem other than to point out how amazing, how, how, how marvelous it seemed. Um, but the same thing strictly goes with any act of knowing any really independent substance. Okay. I'm confused because we seem to be talking only about knowing. But it seems to me that you have to be learning before knowing. I mean, a, a baby learns. He doesn't really know. He looks at the star, doesn't know what it is. By experience, he learned as he grew up that there are different objects. If things look the same to him, he will never learn. So learning seems to me uh, is a big part before knowing. And uh, if you look at the screen, it is blank. You don't know anything. Once it, it becomes different, so many different pixels coming in, then you know that there is a person moving because you know that before when you were growing up, that there is a person, there are animals, and there are, is that, is that a right I reasoning? I, I, see, I, I see exactly, I think, the problem that you're pointing to. Okay. The simplest way I think I could make, respond to that and to... Um, clarify the answer to the question in terms of what I've said is this. I would take knowing or acts of knowing to include um, both um, disorganized knowing and organized knowing. And I would put learning, the whole process of learning, Un under this to some extent, although it, could all, it also goes over here, but in order to get at the contrast that, that you were making, if you start with the child, the child doesn't know much, we say. The child needs to learn, but learning is always by acts of knowing, e even on a very elementary level. And in the words of uh, William James, who was not only uh, a pragmatic or pragmatist philosopher, but also a psychologist. In, in the words of William James, the, the child is initially faced with a blooming, buzzing confusion. It's like the world um, is pouring in through his different external senses, and he can't make any sense out of it. It's a very disorganized-seeming place. He's being overloaded with information, you might say, to use a term that's current I I at the present time. Many of us are overloaded with information in terms of individual bits and pieces. The problem is to organize it. And once we organize it, we say, now I know it. 
because I can connect the different individual things that I know. I know something most truly if I can fit it into an overall pattern, if I can see how it's related to or connected to other things, very often in terms of cause and effect. So all I would say is learning is composed of individual acts of knowing in which we haven't yet seen the pattern. We don't understand how the pieces fit together. We're trying to fit the pieces together. Uh, and we can say knowledge in its highest or best sense comes after we have learned how the pieces, the bits and pieces fit together. But learning is still done in terms to where it comes down to individual acts of knowing on a very basic level. Seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, tasting something, remembering something. It's all part of learning and it goes on in the very beginning, but it also goes on in the mind of you know, a, a scientist, a philosopher, someone who knows some area very well. He still has more to learn. That is, he still has more order to introduce into the individual bits and pieces of knowledge that he has. And then when he finally gets things into an order that satisfies him, then he says, now I really know, now I understand. So I'm, I'm saying that learning, lear, lear, learning also con consists of individual pieces of knowing. It's just that we don't yet see the whole pattern and we don't know in that larger sense. Thank you very much, Dr. Flippin. You're welcome. Thank you all for coming tonight. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.